Well, you have the text before you for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, the passage from Exodus 12 as well, well the prelude to, to uh, that passage in Corinthians. This is now the third teaching on this series of God's means of grace. And just quickly a reminder, means of grace would be any activity within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. Thankfully, there is more grace. He doesn't just save us and say, there's you some grace now. Go have a life. You know, he keeps pouring grace out upon us. And he does this mainly through gatherings just like this of the body of Christ through the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, uh, the reading of the word, the fellowship of God's people together, prayer, all these means of grace. Um, and there could, there are numerous of them. We could continue to name them. But we said that um, mainly we focus on the ordinary, what's known as the ordinary means of grace, which would be the Word of God taught, the baptism of believers, the Lord's Supper together, which we'll talk about today in prayer and discipline. And more specifically, this set of lessons that I wanted to do were mainly for the purpose of focusing on the two ordinances, which are means of grace given to the church by Christ himself. And of course, that would be baptism and the supper. And last week, we spent time talking about baptism. And I spent a little more time explaining what an ordinance is. Because for uh, many, baptism and the supper are called sacraments. But Baptist chose another word, ordinance. Uh, many think because we wanted to get away from the Catholic term of sacrament. But really, it was more because of the word ordinance, which means uh, something ordained or something prescribed and assumes the ability of the one given the ordinance to be able to obey it. And so Baptists use that word to really separate themselves from the Presbyterians in their baptism of infants. And then further, even for the supper, which we'll talk about today, um, we don't give the Lord's Supper to infants either because we assume as an ordinance of Christ, it must be something that they can hear and receive by faith and believe uh, as they do believe in Christ and have received him by faith. And so um, I thought that was very unique and interesting and, um, and good on, on Baptists for uh, discerning that and being willing to go that far, to that, that little detail, um, to be able to, to uh, flesh this out for us even more. Um, and so... What I want to do is, uh, we've read 1 Corinthians 11, and I will, I will look back at it, but I want to sort of follow our confession, because the confession takes the chapter on baptism straight from 1 Corinthians 11, almost, and so I want to read parts of that to you as we talk through this um, ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll celebrate the Supper together um, it's hard to it's hard to get much better than having a sermon and then being able to illustrate it physically by doing what you're talking about, you know. And so that's what we're going to do today. But this is what our confession says about the supper. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits of Christ's death, 
their spiritual nourishment and growth in him and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. And one reason I wanted to read that is because, again, to highlight this idea, because I'm sure most of you, like me, for most of my life, I didn't think through this thing very much. I thought, it's just a memorial, because Baptists, we tend to go all the way back to a guy named Zwingli, and we like to say, it's just a memorial, it's just a memory, remembrance thing. But our confession, our Baptist forefathers were very um, descriptive and wanted to point out, no, there's something better going on here. This is a means of grace. Just like you come to sit and hopefully as you hear the word of God preached, you expect God to speak through his word and uh, develop thoughts about him more and instruct you how to live according to his word and from that foundation of Christ be able to live the way he's called you and teach us about repentance and all these things. Well, so the confession points out, hey, the supper does that too. It's a means of grace. When we come together in just a little while and we take the elements that God, that Christ himself has um, consecrated, the bread and the wine, then we are to seriously stop and consider what that represents. It doesn't become anything magically, okay? But we really believe that the presence of Christ is with his people and he is pouring himself out to us more and opening our minds more to who he is and transforming us more as we partake of this. Because it is true and real, though it's not Christ physically present here with us, but we do believe or the means are not becoming him, but we do believe he is physically present with us. And I love that our confession points out it is given for the confirmation of the faith. So what better way to be reconfirmed in your faith in Christ than to do this every week? To take this and hear, this is my body, Christ saying these words again, broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Take, eat, take, drink. It's a confirmation of our faith. It's a confirmation of the benefits of Christ's death, that he died for us in our place, that he took the wrath of God that we deserved. And then God accounts Christ's righteousness on our behalf, even though we've never done anything to deserve it. We are to think about that today as we take that bread and we break it and we put it in our mouth and we eat it and we drink that wine as a remembrance of the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. And it says, for our spiritual nourishment and growth, this is how we grow. Hey, 13-week discipleship classes, those are great. But I'm telling you, this is what Jesus Christ himself gave to the church to grow you. To bring you together. And I love that they point out, this is to be observed in the churches. Now, Baptists have been very clear about this from the beginning. This is not something you just do up at the Hardee's with some people that you met. This is the church, the people of God gathered. Now, I'm not saying there aren't special circumstances sick folks from our church that are home want to be a part of this together and we try to go out if that comes up with some of the church and we try to fellowship with them but this is not just to be done out in public we were brought into one of those uh, back a few years ago it's very uncomfortable uh we didn't realize it was happening we were in a, a group of just a gathering it wasn't even a church gathering but they decided since it was christmas we're going to have the lord's supper and they passed it out 
and it was just so cold and stale. And to me, as a Baptist, I'm like, no, this is not Lord's Supper. We're just eating some crackers and drinking some grapefruit juice or whatever. I mean, grape juice, this is not the supper. Because it's supposed to be the church gathered for the purpose of this, the explaining of the gospel. There was none of that. And I'm not being critical of the people. They didn't know, they didn't know what I'm teaching you, okay? So I'm not throwing rocks at people. I just, in my, in my own soul, it was, it was very disparaging. But I love that our confession points this out. Hey, this is to be done in the churches to the end of the age, perpetually, as a display of the sacrifice of Christ's death and a confirmation of our faith. And not only our growth in faith, but to further uh, engage us in all the duties that we owe to him. We are created under Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, under good works. Now, we know we don't do those very well most of the time. Almost all the time, we're failing. We need more grace. That's what this supper does. It brings us to that again and again and again. So that we get the, that what works are performed through us, we get them in the right order, right? That anything we do well comes from the relationship and the grace that Christ has already given to us and purchased us by and born in us. So that when something is good in us or through us, we know that's Christ, and we don't get it mixed up. And also, we don't get in the frustration of trying to do good stuff and get the order backwards. i got to do some good things because I'm probably out of favor with God. i got to do some good things to get back to him. You know, like, like our kids do or we used to do as kids. I made mom mad, so I want to do some good things, clean the house, see if I can get back in good favor. And what we do in Christianity and our faith and in the supper especially, we're not trying to get back in good graces with Christ. We're being brought to the remembrance that by grace we've been saved through faith and it's not of ourselves. And we can never get more in good standing with God than what we are in Christ, right? I can't do anything to make him love me more. We've got to, we've got to get this out of our brains that somehow Christianity is a merit system. If I do well, God loves me more. If I don't do good, he doesn't love me much today. No, that's why we are learning this. More grace, more grace. And we'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes. And I love how it points out um, to us that on the same night he was betrayed. This is the night Christ instituted the supper, the night of his betrayal, just prior to his crucifixion. We read this clearly in Luke chapter 22. There's three accounts of the Gospels that give us the night of the betrayal and the institution of the supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us this. And this is Luke's account. And when the hour came, Christ reclined at table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We just read about the Passover, so you know what they were doing. They were celebrating that like all the Jews prior to them since Exodus chapter 12 had done at this certain time of year, celebrating this Passover, this lamb that was slain, that the blood was put over the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over. And, and I love that Christ, uh, we're told he is our Passover. Okay, so he institutes this, the night of the Passover, I think to show the Passover has been fulfilled, okay, in Christ. For I tell you, he says, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit or eat the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup 
This cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man for whom, by whom he is betrayed. And then they begin to question one another which of them it could be that was going to do this. And then, of course, Matthew and Mark both conclude when they had sung a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. Um, I point that out because I just think it's interesting always to be reminded that uh, Judas was at that supper and at that table that night. Um, and we know that he didn't belong. And I think that's a, a big deal in something that we should be careful about in reading 1 Corinthians 11. And I think that's the point of 1 Corinthians 11 because in the context here, of course, Paul is warning or writing, sort of reprimanding them about certain things. And he gets to this part and he said, now, um, I'm not commending you about what I... What, and what I'm about to say because he couldn't find anything to commend them about. He found something plenty to rebuke them about. And he goes on to say there's this, you've turned the supper into something else. Now, if you're familiar with church history, a lot of people who study that kind of thing believe that by this point, and think about this, it wasn't very long. This wasn't very long after Jesus had instituted this and went away back to heaven. It doesn't take long for humans to corrupt Anything that's good, okay? We can do it real fast. This is real fast. And he's having to correct it. And they had apparently attached some kind of love feast to the supper. So they would come together and eat these feasts together, and then they would have the supper. And a lot of people believe it comes, being in Corinth, it was possibly from pagan ritualistic feasts that they were accustomed to having. And they've attached this some way or at least that's what it looks like it has become at this point. And what was happening was the poor, and possibly um, what our um, confession referred to as the ignorant, those who didn't know, they were being either shoved away from the table, the Lord's Supper wasn't even happening because, as Paul said, some of you don't do anything but come and eat, and then you get drunk, and then that's over. You're not even doing what's supposed to be. You're, you're, you've corrupted the supper. And I think in the process, the poor obviously have been neglected. Some people left hungry. So these feasts that were originally maybe uh, planned for good to help provide for the needs of the people and have this wonderful time of fellowship and food and then the supper had become corrupt because there were divisions among them. There are factions. The King James even says heresies, trying to point out that hey, these were not just divisions. These divisions have become something you really believed and even become part was becoming part of your doctrinal teaching. You, you were so messed up um, from these divisions. Of course, God was even sovereign over that because he said, but I don't I believe that because some of you, you need to be divide, divided and you need to have heresies. That separates the true church from the false church. So even in that, he saw God's sovereign hand at work. But they, it comes with all these warnings afterwards. And I think sometimes we pick up down here in verse 27 and we skip all this that's going on. And what Paul does uh, for the Corinthians here, he comes back, at, well, starting in verse 23, and he says, hey, I'm going to remind you what the supper's about. 
Because it looks like y'all have forgotten this. This is not just time of food and fellowship. This is a time of remembrance. And this is a very sacred ordinance of the Lord because of what it represents and what it symbolizes and what it means to the church. And so he spells that back out to them. And then he gives these warnings. Beginning in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why even some of you are weak and ill and some have even died, he says. Pretty serious. But if we judge ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we are not condemned along with the world. Now, there's been a tendency to take those few verses and try to scare people to death before the supper. you got to stop and be solemn. you got to be serious about this. If you can recollect anything you've done in the last 24 hours or 48 hours, you need to repent and get this right and make sure you're forgiven. I think that's missing the whole context. Because what that does is make the supper about what we've done or not done as opposed to what Christ has already done. And that's a problem. But that's what we do, right? We make everything about us. And I don't think that's the point here. I think the ultimate point is, hey, y'all messed up the supper. And whoever would eat and drink in an unworthy manner would have to be somebody that didn't belong. Right? Who would not belong? Somebody who's not redeemed. I don't think there's anything in here that suggests, hey, if you've come and you can't recollect every sin you've you've committed in the last week and a half and talk, and talk to the Lord about it, don't take it to supper. I think this was a warning to the people in Corinth specifically. Hey, you're keeping, number one, you're keeping every, people from the supper and the table that need to be there. You've corrupted the whole idea of it. You've hidden the meaning by your feasts. And not only that, but you're not teaching the ignorant what this is about. So you may be causing some people that are unworthy and ignorant of the truth of this to come to the table when they don't need to be at the table. Does that make more sense, maybe? Because here's the truth. If we're only going by worthiness and unworthiness, none of us are worthy. That's why we come to the table, right? We come to the table because we've been invited. Christ calls all of his people to the table. Now, I don't think it's ever a bad idea. Clearly, let a person examine himself. Yes. And eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself in light of the gospel. When you come to the table, it's not, man, do I belong here? No, none of us belong here, but we've been invited here. So in examining myself, I examine myself in light of who I am and who God is and who Christ is and what he's done for me. And so I come to the table unworthily, but knowing that in Christ, he has made me a guest at the table, and I'll always be a guest. Now, there are certain circumstances where the church would withhold people from the table who are just flat in sin and refusing to admit they're sinful and open uh, defiance of God and his word, then we would do our best to 
keep you from coming. We would wonder, why are you not sorrowful for your sin? Is God not giving you repentance over your sin? Do you belong to Christ? And see, I think that's the thing. Examine yourself. If you're in Christ, come to the table. Not if you're in good standing. Well, here's the thing. If you're in Christ, you're in good standing with the Lord based on the righteousness of Christ, not your own. But again, we've mixed that up and we've turned it over to something that results in, have I been meritorious enough to get to the table? As if it's a, you know, there's some ladder steps you had to go up and if you cross all the T's and not all the I's, you can get to the table. And I don't think that's what is meant here at all. I think these people were sick and dying in Corinth because they had corrupted and perverted the supper. Not because they came to the table and had two sins they forgot about yesterday and didn't repent of them. I was trying to find some support for this, and I at least found, uh, I found a lot actually, but I thought this was a great quote from one of the Puritan writers, Matthew Henry. He said, The Holy Spirit never intended this passage of Scripture to deter serious Christians from their duty, though the devil has often made this, uh, made this advantage of it and robbed good Christians of their choicest comforts. I think that's probably pretty accurate. Because what was appointed, he said in another place, what was appointed to feed Christian souls have been employed to feed their lusts. That's what God was upset about. That's what Paul was up in arms about. Hey, this is, this is a gift from God, and you've clouded it with your own stuff. And this is a great time. I love that, again, our confession points out here, this is a bond and a pledge of our communion with Christ and with each other. This is another one of those opportunities where God gives us greater fellowship with each other through our fellowship with Christ and through this physical means. We get to look around and see all of us, man, all of these, we're all eating the, the body of Christ. We're all drinking the blood of Christ. We belong to each other. I go out into the world tomorrow, I'll be in the mixed group of some people that possibly know Christ and love him and some that hate him, some that would soon see what I believe gone and dead. But I know in this room this morning, as we eat, we all eat together. And we be in, we're in bonds together, the bonds of Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 of chapter back, Paul asked this question, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, in the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. And that word participation is the word you've possibly heard before, koinonia, because it's popular to put on T-shirts and coffee mugs now. But it means to fellowship. And the King James says, instead of participation, communion. So if you've ever heard anybody say, refer to the supper as communion, that's why it's literally written, translated in the King James as communion. Because it is communion not only with Christ, but it's communion with each other. Fellowship with Christ, fellowship with each other. And so we come to this table together all unworthily in our efforts, in our human flesh, in our own merits. But we come to the table and nobody can keep us away because we've been invited by the one who owns the table and whose body is broken and whose blood has been shed.
And so, though I don't think it's improper to warn those who, and, and I know this word is, has bad connotations in our culture, but those who are ignorant, those who don't know Christ, those who don't know these truths, I think it's, I think it's fair to put that warning out there. Hey, if, if, you're, if you don't belong to Christ and you haven't been baptized into his body of believers and into the fellowship with him, this would mean nothing to you anyways. So don't come. But if you have been, it's completely yours. Do come. We know that the people coming are sinners. That's why we're coming. And we all need to feast on this and fellowship with each other and with him and have this blood that we drink, which in John chapter 6, people thought was weird. That's gross. Many that were following him left. So that, who can entertain this saying, eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Of course, that was uh, symbolic. A picture of what happens. We're literally doing that together today according to his word, but symbolically because we don't really have his flesh and we don't drink his blood. But we, we know what it means to us. And I love that God has given us this um, idea of worshiping according to all of our senses. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Uh, R.C. Sproul has a great um, series of lectures or sermons about the blessings of worship according to our taste, our smell, our sight, our hearing and our touch, and how that even from the Old Testament, we don't, there's one that we don't seem as much um, to use, and that's uh, the smell. But if you go back to the Old Testament, look at the stuff that was employed in worship, the incense. But then we read in the New Testament that Christ is a sweet-smelling savor, an aroma offered up to God. But you have the, the, the smells, the sight, the smoke, and the place of the temple and the places of the veils you couldn't go behind and all the altar stuff and the stands and all these things so we can see and even be able to touch things. You know, especially in the Old Testament, they had to bring their animals that were going to be sacrificed and they watched it. You know, the smell that must have been the different smells. There were all those incense around the temple, but you still had to at least that much blood that much death. There had to be a smell there. And though we don't really have that much now uh, to offer. Uh, now, I can remember as a kid what my church smelled like. You know, what? it's kind of like your home. You know, when you get home, you know, other people might smell your home. You don't smell it, but you know your home and you just, you relax. As a kid, I remember what my church smelled like. If I ever smelled that anywhere, I was like, that's what my church. I don't know what it was, but it had a smell. But I think about this. You know, every week we use our hearing, we worship, we sing together. We use our eyes, we see each other, we, we use touch, we hug each other, shake hands. All that's, I don't know that we think it through, but that's part of worship. God has given that to us. And we get to see sometimes baptism and we get to look at that and there's that picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And now, often we read in Scripture, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And now he's given us that part of worship too. We're going to eat. And even several weeks ago when everybody thought the juice was gross and we're still doing it. But still, that's, that's why my understanding 
one of the reasons that many hold to using real wine is that the old wine that would have been the Jews' wine was bitter at first. And so it would cause them, and, and it may be now, bitter. So that, you know, just like we read in the Passover meal, those bitter herbs, but then there was some sweetness too to go along with it. Those things that would cause the people remembrance, but just when they taste it, every time they taste something bitter, every time they drink the wine, even apart from the supper, their minds might be taken back to, man, that Passover lamb, that, that blood that was put on my doorpost, that God saw fit to pass over me and not kill me and my family. It's, it's an amazing thought. And now we get to do that now. The, the cracker, the, the bread that we break, it doesn't have much flavor. But it's that it's still that substance, and there, you may be somewhere that you eat something, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, that's like the." There's no taste of this. It's like the taste that we have it in the supper, and it might take your mind back. Or if you drink grape juice, or if you drink wine, there may be those things that trigger these faculties. In Sproul's lectures, he said this. I thought it was so interesting. Somebody had done a study on Jonathan Edwards and all of his writings. If you know Jonathan Edwards is or heard of him considered the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. And somebody went back and took all the ands and these and buts and all that out of his writings and tried to condense it down and say, what was the most prominent words that Jonathan Edwards used in his writing? And, of course, people were all over the place. They think, well, it's got to be wrath or it's got to be judgment or justice. You know what they found? The two most words that were written the most out of Jonathan Edwards' pen was excellence and sweetness. Now think about that. Of all he could write about Christ, the thing that came, one of the things that came from his pen the most was how sweet Christ was. Because he had tasted him. And it wasn't something weird. But there's this physicalness that God is about to allow us right now to partake in. Don't take it for granted. It's a sweet thing. I think we take for granted that we hear it all the time and we see it a lot. And we even touch it and feel it. But you're about to taste and see that the Lord is good. So I pray that this will encourage you and help you. And every time, I can't preach this every Sunday, but every time we take the supper every Sunday, I hope this will encourage your heart to come to the table joyfully. Right? That was always a good thing about being a kid, usually. Even if you were in trouble... You still got to come to supper, you know, unless you're in bad trouble. You might have to eat in your room. And really bad, okay, but that's why we're not always a good example of, of God and Christ because as parents, we, we don't do too well. But this is a great thing about the supper. Yeah, you messed up. I have too. We all messed up, but we're still getting to come to the table and celebrate because of who we are. So we'll do that together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. For the teaching of it, Lord, for the blessing of the supper that we're about to partake in. And I pray that you would cause it to just well up inside of us and we would be able to rejoice together as we remember Christ and we taste the blessing of a body that was broken for us and bruised and wounded for us and a blood that was shed just so we might be saved. We're so thankful for that. And we ask that you would meet with us now in a special and awesome way. 
that Christ might be glorified and that your people might be edified and built up together in Jesus' name. Amen.